This is the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and to mark the anniversary, we're replaying some favorite shows from the archive. This one, an interview with Bob Gill, was recorded in December of 2013. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with legendary designer Bob Gill about coming up in the profession in the 1950s, about working with the Beatles, and about the problem with many designers today. The vast majority of designers, their idea of a wonderful job is something that's beautiful. They're just not that interested in expressing an opinion. Here's Debbie Millman. There are a lot of things to know about Bob Gill, but here are a few random nuggets to get us started. He was born in 1931. When he was a teenager, he played piano gigs in the Borscht Belt. He was one of the founding partners of Pentagram. He prefers the word idea rather than concept. He once went to London on a whim and stayed for 15 years. He's designed for the Beatles. He's made industrial films, put on a Broadway show, and written children's books. Such were his talents, he was once asked to direct a hardcore porno movie. But he had to admit to the producer that he had never seen one. That was probably because he was too busy writing books on graphic design, including the classic Forget All the Rules You Ever Learned About Graphic Design, including the ones in this book. To talk about his illustrious career, Bob is joining me at our studio in the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where he also used to teach. Bob Gill, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, thank you. So, Bob, is it true that your mother was a piano teacher, and when you were five years old, you became her first pupil? Absolutely, yes. And I read that you had your first band when you were 10. You played bar mitzvahs in the Borscht Belt at 14, and then joined the Musicians' Union at 15. What happened to your musical career? I never took it very seriously. It was just a wonderful way of getting away in the summer. I used to spend every summer in the Borscht Belt, which was terrific. Did you go to camp as well? Were you a, a camper? As a matter of fact, my mother answered an ad when I was about 12. This was just before I started playing in a band and so forth. And it was for a music counselor, and she was a piano teacher. So she was interviewed over the telephone, and the woman uh, said, uh, you're hired. She convinced the woman that she would be a qualified music counselor. And the woman said, well, there's one other thing that you should know, that you will probably get tips. (laughs) And the woman said, we're going to take the tips. So my mother told her to shove it up her ass. (laughs) I see where you get your feistiness. Anyway, in the end, she did uh, accept the job, and um, I went to camp, which was nice, but of course it was much more fun to be on my own and to play in resorts in the Borscht Belt. Do you still play any instruments? Not really. I knew that I wasn't very good. I mean, I sounded like a piano player, but I knew that I couldn't possibly take it seriously and succeed. I went all through art school playing piano 
in bars in Philadelphia. Philadelphia happened to be a terrific place where every bar had a piano. And so it was a way that I went through art school. So you left home at 17 originally to see the world, but only got as far as the Philadelphia Philadelphia, Museum School of Art, where you studied design and drawing. When had you decided at that point in your life that you wanted to be a designer versus a musician and why a designer versus a musician? I knew I wanted to be a designer when I was probably 10, 11. My teacher in elementary school suggested that I go to the High School of Music and Art, which ironically turned out to be a wonderful place for me to get club dates as a pianist (laughs) uh, rather than learning anything in the art department, although I was an art student. Why is that? Well, they just didn't have very good art teachers. But how did it help you get gigs? Because I hung out with the music students. It was like the union floor every Friday. Everyone picked up a job on Friday afternoon. So after two years at the Philadelphia Museum School of Art and six months at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, you returned to New York. Right. I was very anxious to start freelancing. I just couldn't wait. So early on in your design career, you had two impactful meetings with famous designers at the time. You showed your portfolio to Alexei Brodovich. That's right. Who told you to forget design and become a photographer. Right. right. And then you met with Paul Rand, who told you to stay in the business. Right. First, two questions from this. How did you get to meet them, and why did Alexei discourage you from being a designer? The, um, the drill at that time was when you left art school, You had a portfolio, such as it was, and you tried to see the most interesting designers and art directors in New York. And obviously, Paul Rand and Brodovich. I forget whether Brodovich was at Harper's Bazaar or Vogue. I think at that time he was at Harper's Bazaar. Harper's Bazaar, and you call up and they make an appointment. Every young person who leaves art school goes through the same but routine. They, but they accepted the invitation to no, meet. No, no. The normal thing is you, uh, for example, Paul Rand was typical. He was at an agency at the time called Weintraub, and you call up and you say you'd like to leave your portfolio. You wouldn't presume to want to show it to Paul Rand. He was too grand for that. But you leave your portfolio hoping that he would see it. So I did, and a few days later, I got a telephone call saying you could pick up your portfolio. The great man has blessed it and seen it and so (laughs) forth. So I picked up the portfolio, and there was a note on it saying, Mr. Rand would like to meet me. Fortunately, he was in the building, and so the receptionist called back, and he came out, and he walked towards me, extending his hand obviously, to shake my hand. So I I shook it, and he held on to it, didn't say a word, and wouldn't let go. And what seemed like hours, <laughs> he eventually uh, said, stay in this business. Since then, any time it was possible, I tried to make a connection with him because He was one of my idols, but he never seemed very interested in me. He was a curmudgeon kind of a guy, but eventually we became very 
friendly, and I used to have lunch with him occasionally and so forth. And didn't he eventually tell you that you were his favorite designer? Yes, eventually. uh, It was like pulling teeth. But anyway, he told me that he loved my work very much. And uh, about uh, a few weeks before he died, he gave a talk at Cooper Union, and there were thousands of admirers there. And someone got up and said, who's your favorite designer? And he rubbed his chin and took forever. And he said, I don't have any. So that destroyed me. Oh, I thought you were going to say that he said you. No, and I was no, going to absolutely say, not. Oh, no. my God. I told you he was a curmudgeon. <laughs> your first ever design job was to create a cover for Interiors magazine. Yes. How on earth could your first job be the cover of a magazine. Well, again, it was very traditional. Every art student, when they left art school, one of the first stops they would make was Interiors Magazine. Yes. It was a very, because very was influential a very magazine. At prestigious. The time. Yep. So I, like everybody else, went to Interiors. I showed my portfolio to the art director, and he liked it very much, and he said, I'd like to assign you a cover. Of course, they didn't pay for it. It was such an honor to do a job, a cover for interiors that uh, they didn't dream of paying for it. After all, the owner was Jock Whitney, who was one of the richest men in America. Anyway, of course, I was thrilled, and I did a cover, and I brought it in, and he liked it, and they published it. And when I brought it in, he said to me, you know, we are so embarrassed seeing these young designers and assigning them covers. And Mr. Whitney doesn't pay anything. He said, why don't you write a letter to Mr. Whitney saying that you appreciate that the honor of doing a cover, but wouldn't it be nice if he could pay you a token, 10 or $20 for the cover? What year was this, Bob? In the late 1880s. <laughs> At that time, $10 was worth $5,000. No, it was the 50s or 60s. Anyway, Whitney got the letter and misunderstood the message. He thought I was blackmailing him into paying me for the cover that I had already done. That was actually on the press. So he sent me by special messenger, you son of a bitch, how dare you put me in this position where your cover is being printed and we are not paying you. He said, if I could stop the press, I would. Anyway, a month later, I was passing Brintano's, which was the big bookstore on Fifth Avenue. And I see 5,000 covers in the window. I almost had a heart attack. It was my first published job. So I ran up to Interiors And the art director, whose name was Mango, was on a stepladder hanging one of a hundred covers decorating the reception area of interiors. And there was a pile of covers on the floor. And I reached to grab some, and he started screaming at me, "'Get out of here. You're not welcome anymore.'" Whitney told me you're never to step foot in this building. Eventually, I saw a copy of the magazine, and I was horrified. 
Why? Well, because I signed it Gill, and on the inside it said cover design Leslie Gill. I was absolutely horrified oh. because if it was Freddie Gill, nobody knew a Freddie Gill. But Leslie Gill was a very well-known designer photographer. And I remember saying to myself, someday they won't know who Leslie Gill is. They'll know who I am. And so I had some consolation, but it was really maddening. And then I called Mango and I said, could he please, on the next issue, could he please mention that they had made a mistake? He said, no, Whitney forbid me to have any contact with you or to say anything about you. So it was Leslie Gill. That was my first baptism of fire. Your illustrations after doing the cover for Interiors began appearing in Esquire and The Nation, Seventeen magazine, Fortune magazine, Glamour magazine. Yes. And then in 1955, you designed the titles for the CBS sitcom Private Secretary. Yes. And you won your first ADC, Art Directors Club, gold medal for it. Right, right. And I understand that after that, you got an answering service. Yes. I splurged. (laughs) And I read that when you were working on Private Secretary, you realized that fashionable typefaces and modern layouts were not as exciting or fulfilling as trying to invent an original image for every job. Yes, I would put it even stronger. When I went to art school, and I think it's largely true today, although it's less consistent today, The uh, ideal was to simply do beautiful, well-designed things, whatever that meant. And I, along with every other art student in 1948 and 49, that was my ideal, to do something that was beautiful. And when I got out and started seeing work, and especially the work of Paul Rand and uh, art directors at Doyle Dane Burnback... I realized that it was much more interesting not to know what was good and bad. It was much more interesting to invent a good that really did the job, that communicated. After all, it was like a mathematician knowing that the answer is 128 before he knows what the problem is, which is dopey. How could anybody do that? of all the designers even today, they know what's good and they know what's bad. They could recognize it. So did that mean that you went about creating work in a way that was reinventing some of the questions that were being asked? How did you approach the work? It wasn't so mysterious. It seemed quite obvious to me that, let's say I got a logo to do for a dry cleaner. Instead of sitting in my studio or looking through design books to get inspiration, surprise, surprise, I thought it made sense to go to a dry cleaner and to sit there. I didn't have a definite uh, process that I went through. I just knew I should stay there until I had something interesting to say about dry cleaning. 
just to sit there, to ask questions, to see what people were doing, to look at the back of the dry cleaner and so forth. And in the end, of course, you must be honest with yourself. I hoped I was honest with myself. If I had something genuinely interesting to say about dry cleaning, I would listen to this statement and it would design itself. So when talking about the dry cleaning example, is that a hypothetical or was that an actual challenge that you were faced with? No, it's just the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, Sometimes I used to go to a dry cleaner and sit there, even if I didn't have to do a job involving dry cleaning because the naphtha fumes (laughs) were a great, uh, wonderful turn-on. So sometimes I'd drop in anyway. But in any event, I don't preconceive what is a beautiful logo or a beautiful poster. I let what I have to say about the subject of this poster or this logo design itself. Well, almost. Obviously, I I have to help a little, but I hope that I practice what I preach. In 1956, you started teaching here at the School of Visual Arts. Yes. And it was at this time that you became obsessed with problem-solving. And I understand that you were relentless with your students and would shout, tell me your idea, don't show me a layout. That's right. (laughs) So why did you use the word idea and not concept? First of all, we will never have concepts. We are not smart enough to have a concept. A concept, in order to be a concept, has to be a very big idea. The Big Bang Theory was a concept. But what do you think about conceptual art then, art that's based on concepts as opposed to just Uh, uh, specific skill in drawing or painting? No, I would say art that's based on an idea. It's based on an opinion. And, of course, what disturbs me, which I think is such a shame, that 99% of all the designers working today are still infected with the notion that there is such a thing as a good layout and a bad layout. Go into Barnes & Noble and look at a 100 books. Maybe there'll be one, maybe none, where if it's a book about alligators, there's a beautiful photograph of an alligator on the cover. So why do you think that is? Why do you think there's so much? Because designers just don't like to think, apparently. I think it's sad. It's so much more interesting not to know what is a good thing. You make a statement about alligators. Again, I don't know what it is. I'd have to go and spend a week with one. Swimming with the alligators. Swimming with the alligators. If I can come up with a statement that's interesting about alligators, I listen to that statement and it designs itself. Let me give you just an Yeah, I was going to say, because I don't understand the designing itself part of this. Okay. A very obvious, simple example. I had to do a logo for a company that repairs computers and donates them to schools and charities and so forth. They commissioned me to do a letterhead and a logo and so forth. So I started off with a statement. And having spent some time with them, one of them said, inadvertently, without thinking. They said, you know, a computer is such a, such a sad thing to waste. It's so expensive, and we could fix it. 
Well, I liked that statement, and I thought it had the ring of a quotation. A computer is a terrible thing to waste. So I asked myself, who would say this? Who was the most interesting person who ever lived who would say this? Ah, Shakespeare. (laughs) So that was the logo. Quote, a computer is a terrible thing to waste. I forget what the words were. And then I signed it in italic, William Shakespeare. And surprise, surprise, it's a very interesting-looking logo because it doesn't look like any logo that anyone else has ever done. So in 1960, on a whim, you went to London, and you ended up staying for 15 years. Yes. Um, You originally took a job as the creative director of an agency, but ultimately felt that that was a mistake. Well, it was a lot simpler than that. I never set out to become the creative director of an agency. A friend of mine, a wonderful designer called Reba Socius, who, alas, is no longer with us, I was just about to go on a holiday to England. And she called me up and she said, you know, there's an ad in the Times that there's a guy who has an agency who's looking for Americans to hire as an art director. I said, oh, that's interesting. Much more interesting to work in England than it is to go and see the Tower of London or whatever. So I went to the Algonquin Hotel with my portfolio. And the guy interviewed me. And I said, look, I'll be honest with you. I'm just starting to have some fun in New York. But if you will hire me for a couple of weeks for the summer, I'd love to work in London. So he hired me. I went to London with no thought of ever staying. But it was strange. And, of course, you never know when these things hit you. As soon as I got off the plane, I just thought I'd spend the rest of my life there. It just seemed like the moon. It was so exciting to be in a place where everything you looked at, everything you touched, everything you tasted was different. Well, that's a wonderful thing for someone who's interested in new experience. So what about it was a mistake? Well, it was a terrible mistake because it was a very bad hack agency. (laughs) And so I didn't stay very long. Anyway, I met Alan Fletcher. He was sharing a studio with Colin Forbes. How did you meet Alan Fletcher? He was the one name that someone gave me. When I left New York, they said he was a terrific designer. He was sharing space in Colin Forbes' apartment. And I went to see them, and I, we talked together. It was so obvious that we should get together. So we formed Fletcher, Forbes, and Gill, the design consultancy, which, as you said in your introduction, got bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually the name was changed to Pentagram. Now, is it true that you only agreed to start the firm with them after you went to a clairvoyant in a caravan? No, no, that's an exaggeration. First of all, (laughs) um, Brighton, which is a British resort outside of London, had a very famous fortune teller. And a lot of my friends who were in the theater would always go to this fortune teller when they were about to start a play or a movie or something to find out if it was the right thing to do. 
Anyway, I was walking around Brighton. I was on my own, and suddenly I see this shingle, Madam So-and-so, and I thought it would be fun. So I went in, and she took one look at my palm, and she said, Oh, you must sign with these two men. You're going to be very, very successful. And she was right. And she was right. But, of course, that was the last thing in the world that would have influenced me if she told me, don't sign with these people. They're axe murderers or whatever. Of course I would have signed. So what Uh, was it like? How did you all work together? I mean, this is legendary. Fletcher, Forbes, Gill. How did you all manage to do the work you did? We invented, just like any problem solver, the best way to work together. And And how was that? What was that? It was absolutely wonderful. We had three glass boxes side by side, Fletcher, Forbes, and Gill. And what was so wonderful is that if Fletcher and I would walk past Forbes' cubicle, we'd walk in, obviously, we were curious to see what he was doing, We took one look, and we would say to him, Colin, this is disgusting. (laughs) He wouldn't bat an eye. He wouldn't attempt to argue with us because he knew that Fletcher and I were more talented and smarter than he was. So he just threw it out and did something else. But, of course, the next day, Forbes and Fletcher would be walking along, looking in my cubicle, and they would look at what I was doing, and they'd say, Bob, this sucks. This is terrible. Again, I knew they were right because the two of them were smarter and more talented than little me. I wish every design partnership has this kind of a relationship. It was just terrific, and it lasted uh, about seven years until it started to get so big that it wasn't my scene any longer. Now, how did you go about first getting work? Is it true that it took a year for you to get a telephone? Yes. Uh, Britain in the early 60s was just like a desert island, especially compared to New York, which was much more sophisticated and much more advanced and So everything took a long time. How about getting work? How fast did you get work? Well, as Fletcher used to say, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Why? So it was was easy. Fletcher and Forbes were very well known. And I was a bit of a celebrity because I had come from New York. Uh, We wrote a book which sold 100,000 copies. As I say, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. We were very successful very quickly. I had a one-man show at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam. It was just wonderful, wonderful. So in 1967, by 1967, the company was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You and started to add architecture to. Yeah. So why did you decide to leave? What made you decide to say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore? It was getting too big. I've never done a very big, important job in my life. It just makes it easier to do a good thing for a, you know, a dry cleaner than it is for General Electric. Oh, but Bob, I mean, I have hundreds of questions here about projects that you did for Beatlemania. Uh, When the Beatles started their own label called Apple, they called me. Right. So so how does this not doing big jobs fit into well, that uh, statement? Doing a, a record sleeve. First of all, it was not a Beatles 
record. It was a George Harrison score for a movie called... Wonderwall. Wonderwall. They commissioned me to do Wonderwall, and I did it. They all gathered around to judge it and so forth. Including George? And including everybody. And George? Uh, yes, George. Paul, John, and Ringo all yes, looked all at together. it? together. Yes. So you hung out with them? They were inseparable, the four of them. Anyway... What was that like to hang out with the Beatles? I thought they were shipping clerks. <laughs> anyway... Um, of course you did. Uh, um, I don't want to bore you with the description of the album cover that I did, but it consisted of a brick wall. I know what it looks like. And the movie that Harrison wrote the score was about a very boring civil servant who lived in a bed-sitting room next to a wild group of hippies, and he used to listen at the wall to God knows what he fantasized was going on there. So I thought it would be fun to do a brick wall And Harrison looked at it, and he said, I love it, but I want you to remove one brick. There were about 5,000 bricks in my painting of a brick wall. I said, George, that's very corny, George. You don't have to. He said, well, it's my fucking album, and I want that brick removed. So I had about 10 seconds to decide to tell him to shove it or... Yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full, sir, because it was an important job. But the fun of it was a few months later after it came out, I was interviewed by some design magazine and I put the brick back in. So (laughs) what ended up representing me was the brick wall with the brick replaced. So, Bob, after you left Fletcher Forbes Gill, ultimately that organization, that company became Pentagram, yes. one of the best and biggest design firms yes, in the world. Yes, it's amazing how long it's lasted. They still do a very nice job. Do you have any regrets in, in yes, leaving? Yes, of course. Oh, you do? Of so, course I have. I've made a terrible mistake. I should have been the partner who stayed in the corner and did my own thing, and I could have been a rich man. Of course I have regrets. But you can't be so smart about these things. You just do what you have to do. How do you recover from something like that? How do you, If you think back to something that you did, a decision that you made that you feel was a mistake, how do you propel yourself forward and not get stuck in the notion oh, of that I, was a mistake? I don't, I don't dwell on it. No. Obviously, if you dwell on something that was sad or that was a mistake, it's very, uh, it's devastating. But uh, I'm the last person to dwell on these things. Good for you. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not just talking like that. I mean, no, I, I'm I, very I'm, fortunate I've... that I don't uh, dwell on these things. I certainly uh, have had a wonderful career, so I can't very well say how unlucky I've been. It's just that I probably could have had the same career if I stayed. Let's talk about your good friend and great designer, another great designer, Robert Brownjohn. How did you first meet him? Brownjohn was a partner with Chemayoff and Geismar. It's funny, uh, when I got to London, the highest flat in London 
was, I think, the 18th and 19th floor. It was a duplex. They had just built it. It was called the Camden Hill Tower. So naturally, I wanted to live there, and I did live there. Brown John lived in the same building, and that's how we became friends. Obviously, I knew him from New York, but of course, being two Americans in London, we obviously uh, had a lot in common. Also, I was very pleased because I think Brown John was absolutely brilliant, and I was very flattered when he stopped designing and he started doing commercials and film titles. He hired me to do the designing. I did the logo for his company, and I did ads for him. One of the ads that I loved, because Brown John looked like a maniac. He he gained about 100 pounds and so forth. And I photographed him, and I wrote the headline, Would you buy a used car from this man? (laughs) Because he looked horrible. He is um, one of the great designers of our absolutely, time. And absolutely. As you mentioned, he did film titles for four Ian Fleming's James Bond That's movies, right. including Goldfinger. That's right. I must tell you about a Brown John commercial that was never produced. Please. Which is typical of his brilliance. He was asked to do an anti-smoking campaign. And he made a storyboard which described it perfectly. The scene is black, absolutely black. And suddenly a door opens and you see a sliver of light. And the most beautiful six-year-old English kid, a girl, peers into this room. She knows she's doing something very bad. It's obviously daddy's den. It's all brown leather and so forth. And she goes to Daddy's desk. She opens the the drawer and takes a pack of cigarettes out, puts it in her mouth and lights it, this six-year-old angel, and starts inhaling. There's been no sound at all. And the last 10 seconds of this 60-second commercial, a voiceover says, Now, isn't this stupid? to allow your kids to see you doing this disgusting thing for them to want to imitate. Is there any place anybody can see this? No, it was never made. Oh, so they were just storyboards. The agency was terrified that it was too brutal. Yeah, seeing And the idea of a six-year-old smoking. Anyway, it's typical of Brown John. I have a question about the work that he did and how it was archived after he died. I read that you said... When he died, I felt it was my duty to rush over to his studio to preserve his work. I wanted to gather his work, but his studio was unbelievable. You never saw such chaos, half-eaten sandwiches, odd socks. But I didn't care what sort of estate he was when he went. He was a designer before he was an addict, which meant that somewhere there would be a clean version of every job neatly filed away so that when he went to the studio in the sky, his portfolio was ready. So did you ever find it? Were yes, you able to preserve it? I did. So yes. can you tell us about that? Where well, is all of his just, work now? I went twice. The first time I went, as you quoted me, there were half-eaten sandwiches and socks, and it was disgusting because he was a slob besides being an addict, so he was chaotic all the time. But I couldn't believe that 
because he was the designer, he had to be ready with a clean portfolio. I just couldn't believe I love believe that you it. knew that. But I gave up. I went, I spent an hour or two there, and I couldn't find it. I decided to go once more, and I found, just as I thought, all the work neatly put together. I brought it to New York, to Chemayov, and I don't know what happened to it after that. I thought they were going to do a book, but it never happened. On the other hand, his daughter did a book. All of us friends and associates were quoted in the book, and there are lots of nice stories there. So at least it's preserved. You spent a good chunk of the late 60s and early 70s directing industrial films. Yes. And you created films for a Singapore airline, a Swiss charity, an Italian typewriter company, an English glue manufacturer, a German aircraft maker, an American hotel chain, and a multinational pharmaceutical corporation. That's right. How did you go from working in graphic design to filmmaking? I, I did a job for Olivetti. And I went to the guy from Olivetti and I said, look, I'd love to have a go making an inexpensive industrial film. It won't be anything like a really professional film company. They said, okay, go. And it worked out very well. As a matter of fact, by that time, Pentagram had a very swish studio. I asked Alan and Colin if I could shoot a film there and they said, of course. And I got six stuntmen who didn't look like stuntmen. They looked like boring businessmen. So the audience didn't know they were professional stuntmen. They were sitting around a very elegant conference room talking jargon. Meanwhile, I hired a woman. I still remember her name, Mae Warden. She was about 100. She was a very experienced English character actress. And she was the tea lady, so she came into this elegant boardroom with a trolley pouring tea, and these six guys ignored her, and they started arguing. 20% is not accurate, and they jumped in and so forth. But, of course, they were stuntmen. One guy jumped across the table and grabbed the lapels of... (laughs) I mean, it was total chaos. And Mae Warden as if she was oblivious to all this. She was just gently pouring tea. Let's talk about what you did when you came back to New York. After making those 19 films, you came back to New York and made one additional film, which was a film in the pornography category. Oh, my God. From what I understand, you had never actually seen... Never saw one. ...a pornographic film at that point in your life. Then you said that doing the film almost put you off sex for that's life. Right. So, so first of all, how does somebody that's never directed a pornographic film, who's well, a graphic I'll, designer, I'll tell you, become a I'll tell director you how, of a pornographic movie? I said to the producers, I want to be the only inexperienced person in this whole production. What is the name of the film for our it's listeners called, that might want to go see it? It's called The Double Exposure of Holly. And what about it was so gruesome that it almost put you off sex for the rest of well, your life? Well, first of all, we shot it in the Warwick Hotel on 6th Avenue, and it was in the summer, and we couldn't have air conditioning because we were shooting sound. So it was like a Turkish bath. It was just horrible. And it was a low-budget thing, so we worked from about 6 o'clock in the morning till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and the cameraman and I 
who really worked the hardest, was so exhausted at the end of this thing that we just collapsed on the bed, the bed. (laughs) Everybody else went home for a couple of hours, but he and I collapsed. I think the most interesting thing about it was that when I mentioned this, that I was directing a porno, I suddenly rose in people's estimation. They thought that this was the most amazing. That was like saying, I just won the Congressional Medal of Honor or I, you know, everybody's fantasy is to direct a porno, but it's a fantasy that doesn't really make any sense. So let's fast forward a bit to today. You've stated that if anyone who can type can do much of the work previously done by well-paid specialists, what's left for the designer? Designers have to do things that a typist with a computer can't do. Exactly. That means they have to be thinkers, problem solvers, whether they like it or not. Exactly. Do you feel that most designers today aren't thinkers and problem solvers? No, I don't see any evidence of it. No? So what do you think they are? All you have to do is go into Barnes & Noble, and there are 500 books on display there. Yeah, but there's some beautiful work being done. Yes. Chip Kidd and Barbara DeWilde and Archie Ferguson. I'm not saying everybody. I'm saying the vast majority of designers— their idea of a wonderful job is something that's beautiful. They're just not that interested in expressing an opinion. And I think that's the fun of being a creative person is to have an opinion. When someone does a history of American birds and all they do is select a beautiful photograph of a bird, which is perfectly appropriate, I could see the publisher liking it with nice type and a nice layout. But what a shame for the designer to have no opinion about American birds. So do you think that that's the failure of the designer, or do you think it's the failure of the client? There are no bad clients. There are only bad designers. If a client was sophisticated enough and knowledgeable enough about graphic design, they would do it themselves. You've said... No matter how many times your amazing, absolutely brilliant work is rejected by the client for whatever dopey, arbitrary reason, there is often another amazing, absolutely brilliant solution possible. Sometimes it's even better. Yes, I I believe that. So is there anything you're dying to get your hands on to redesign and make better? I think uh, I don't want to be glib about it, but I think I could improve every single job I've ever done. I never claim to be uh, uh, perfect or do the definitive job. I do a poster, and the client says, I'm sorry, Bob, I don't like it. I can't say to the client, you should like it. So I say, okay, tell me why you don't like it. And sometimes they can't even tell me that. They struggle with trying to tell me. I say, okay, I'll go away and I'll do another one. I'll give you a perfect example. I did a lot of film posters, and I did one for Al Pacino called um, And Justice for All. (laughs) Okay. And Justice for All is an ironic title. He's a crusading lawyer, and the film is about that there is no justice for all. There's only justice for the rich and powerful. Anyway, they commissioned this poster, and I hired a model put her in a white sheet 
and painted her face white and gave her the scales. And I covered her with rotten eggs and rotten tomatoes and because my statement was justice is defiled. There is no justice. It's defiled. So I took it to California, and they hated it. So what do you do when a client hates your work? You so just I, accept I that? said, I'll do another one because okay. they have to pay anyway. So I went away, and I did another one. I got the same model, and I went to an 8th Avenue Sleezo porno store and got a garter belt and all the accoutrements of a hooker, again with the scales and so forth. My statement was, justice is a whore, which again is true about this is what the movie's about. I bring it to California, and they say, I'm sorry, we hate it. I say, look, you're starting to wear me out. I said, (laughs) what do you really want? Tell me what you want. They said, we want Al. Al Pacino sells tickets. I said, okay, I'll have a go with Al. So I photographed Al. As I said, it says, and justice for all. But of course, there is no justice for all. So I had a big headline, and justice for all, with a big photograph of Al looking tough. And underneath, it said, bullshit. (laughs) So I brought it to California, and they hated it. And they got rid of me. I was going to say, did you get fired after that? Yes, of course. Okay. Fair enough. I don't claim that every client should want me to do a job. They made a mistake. I was the wrong person. Well, Bob, I want to thank you so much for being on Design Matters. My pleasure. To find out more about Bob Gill, you can read his marvelous book, Bob Gill, So Far, or go to his website, Bob Gill, etc. That's E-T-C dot com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. <laughs>